RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. At the same time, in early 2016, with no discernible explanation, two excellent big deal shows about O.J. Simpson appeared on television. One was a five-part documentary from ESPN called O.J. Made in America. O.J. was initially seated, putting on the first glove. I'm handing Mr. Simpson the uh, left glove marking him. And right when it was clear it did not fit, O.J. goes into naked gun mode. The other was a drama on FX called The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Playing the lead prosecutor in the case, Marsha Clark, was Sarah Paulson. One person in 170 million. Is that one person who matches all that DNA in this courtroom today? Yes, he is. Could you please point him out for the jury? Let the record show that Mr. Fung is pointing to the defendant, Mr. Orenthal James Simpson. Marsha Clark was a very successful prosecutor, but she became famous for losing a case that seemed like a slam dunk. And in the process, was slagged by commentators. They mocked her clothing and her hair. They called her shrill, strident, emotional. Pretty classic sexism. It was the most horrible experience of my life. Marsha Clark has spent the two decades since mostly out of the courtroom. She has written two different crime novel series whose protagonists, write what you know, are ambitious female lawyers in L.A., one of them a prosecutor, the other a criminal defense attorney. And now she has conjured another fictional female prosecutor, even more specifically Marsha Clark-like, as co-creator of a new ABC series called The Fix. Before the whole whoop of yeah. 2016, I met with Liz Craft and Sarah Fain, who are my current co-creators and showrunners, um, and did a different project based on a series of books that I write um, currently about that's based on defense attorney Samantha Brinkman. So we developed that pilot with ABC Studios. And then when that didn't go, they it like was about a month later. We had a good time working together. And they called me and said, hey, we have an idea. A prosecutor loses the trial of the century and goes up to a horse farm in Washington. And eight years later, it's suspected that that defendant has killed again. What do you think? <laughs> and I said, kind of sounds familiar, <laughs> except the horse farm part. Why didn't I think of that? Where have you guys been in my life? <laughs> that said, this the Maya Travis, who's the lead of this show, The right. Fix, isn't me. And we we made an effort to not be me. So it is a prosecutor, for sure, right. who has an origin story similar to mine, but that's the end of it. For you, though, I mean, okay, it's not you, but it is like a do-over fantasy for you personally, is it not? It was such a – truthfully, no, because it, it departs from anything that I would have been involved in or done. I know. It's fiction. It's, it's television. Fi yeah. But it's like, oh, I get another go at OJ. 
I mean, yeah, it does. It has that kind of revenge, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, revenge fantasy aspect. It does. It does. I'm going to get them, but um, yeah, well, that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I can definitely right. cop to that. And I'm not going to overdo the autobiography, but. Uh, but watching, I, I think these scenes were both in the pilot. There's a moment uh, when the prosecutor, Maya, played by Robin Tunney, is confronted by the the victim's father. I don't want you anywhere near Jessica's case. You lost. You've done your job right. That bastard would be in jail right now. My baby. You're alive. And then there's this moment where the prosecutor character and her investigator from back in the day who's still there... The investigator is angry that you went off to your horse farm. Not you. That Maya, the character, <laughs> went off to her horse farm and, and, and just quit being a prosecutor. Here is mm-hmm. that uh, scene. You know that thing that Maya Angelou says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. When the going gets rough, you are someone who leaves. You have no idea what it felt like to be me eight years ago. Okay. Was your face on the news all day, every day? Was your entire life dissected, your hair, your clothes, every single decision, every mistake? Nobody knows your name. Nobody blames you for letting a murderer walk. You also quit the district attorney's office after the Simpson verdict. You didn't go off and run a horse farm, uh, but you did stay pretty secluded for a few years. So does this scene come pretty directly out of your personal experience? Yeah, <laughs> it did. And I mean, beautifully played by Marin Dungy as the investigator and Robin Tunney as Maya Travis. Um, yes, it, it did. And what, what Robin is saying and, and what Maya is saying in that scene definitely came from my life experience. Come on. You know, you yes, it was. I'm sorry I left so abruptly. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but I was a mess. I was a wreck. And and I, I can't apologize enough, but I also can't take it back. But let me just say, you know, what I went through is not the same as what you went through. It was – I was front and center and I was the one getting kicked in the teeth every day. You must think, wow, what if in 1994 there had been Twitter and – there was nothing virtually. And it was crazy as it was. The, the office had one fax machine and the public blew up that fax machine. Yeah. It was spinning constantly. And so we sat down and thought, imagine if, if that trial of the century were happening today. And so we deliberately went after what I know happens because my experience has been very helpful working on the defense side as well as a prosecutor and knowing Which you've done things, since you were a yes, prosecutor. Yeah. yeah, I did it before as a prosecutor uh-huh. also. Um, and then, and the way that things work in today's world in terms of trying lawsuits, yeah, people use social media. People definitely spin. They, you know, you see it all the time. You see so, it, say, coming from the White House. Yeah, even. <laughs> Everywhere. So, you know, we, we thought, let's make it real that way. Let's show what would yeah. really happen. Right. Are you a big consumer of true crime, nonfiction, crime fiction, movies, books, all of it? Yes. Yeah. I am an addict. I've been an addict to, uh, since I was a child. Uh-huh. Is it hard to, to like, watch uh, a show and not nitpick since you know so much? It was. Back in the day, especially when I was a prosecutor, I, can you believe? I'm a prosecutor and I watch those shows on TV. And I did. Um, and so it really did drive me crazy when they got it wrong. And in part, now I look back in hindsight and think, but they didn't need to get it wrong. Sometimes sometimes you push the envelope. Of course you do. You push the envelope. But the more you make an effort to get it right, I think the more the audience gets a sense of authenticity. Whether they know it or not, consciously, you know, there's more to it. Yeah. So 
law and order for all that the, the prosecution where the white knights and the white no, hat. Sam Waterston, how can he be bad? Exactly. But they did procedurally get it right. Did you know it was wrong when you woke up that morning? Yes. Did you know it was wrong when you ate your cereal? Yes. He's badgering, Your Honor. Sit down and shut up, Mr. Feynman. Overruled. And you will address the court from now on, Mr. McCoy. And so that was one show I could watch and say, well, but they are getting the procedure correct. Right. So courtroom drama and lawyers have been on television pretty much from the beginning of television. And now that you're writing about lawyers on television... Uh, we asked you to come up with a list of your favorite TV lawyer characters. The first on the list you gave us is the character Diane Lockhart, who uh, Christine Baranski played on The Good Wife and now plays on the spinoff show The Good Fight. Um, we've got a clip. This is she uh, in The Good Wife, uh, who's just taken a case defending a judge played by David Paymer who, when he'd been a prosecutor in the past, uh, put away somebody who turned out to be innocent. Just to be clear, I did nothing less than any yes. prosecutor Yes, just would. to be clear, this isn't your court, Your Honor. This is our offices. You need to drop the entitlement. Excuse me? I thought I was explaining myself. You are acting as if you were the injured party. I have been barred from the bench, ma'am, and I have done nothing wrong. No, Patrick Rooney did nothing wrong, and he spent 20 years in prison for it. He had his wife snatched from him, and then he was accused of a murder. Your attitude, Your Honor, it will do more to condemn you than the evidence. You're on this side of the bench now. You have to show humility. Yeah. So, so what do you like about that uh, about that character that Christine Baranski plays? Oh, everything. <laughs> First of all, let me just say about that scene. Uh-huh. Well done. Um, that was a very quality show. And what she's doing in preparing her client is something that you do, you know, because the jury watches the defendant and they take cues from the way he behaves. So it's really important to let him remind him and shape your client. Look remorseful or, or look sad or look whatever, but do not look like he was looking. Like I'm, How dare you? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's just killer. Huh. So I love the way – and she delivers – see, she's delivering this speech to this guy. She's not screaming. She's not – there's just power. There's power in her voice. There's power and decisiveness in the way she presents. Um, it's strong without being um, bossy. There, right. there's, a, there's a wonderful middle note she hits where you know she's tough, but you know she's smart and she knows what she's doing. The next character on your list is called Helen Weiss, who was the prosecutor on the great HBO miniseries The Night Of and played beautifully by Jeannie Berlin. Here's a clip. It's a scene from the trial. The defendant has just taken the stand, and, and she, the DA, is questioning him. You see why I'm having some trouble here? You had the presence of mind to run from a crime scene, to remove evidence implicating you in the crime, to operate a motor vehicle without crashing into anything. But you didn't have the presence of mind to dial three numbers on your phone. The Prophet Muhammad has this to say about that. Hurry with all the strength of your legs to the one who needs help. Is that what you did for Andrea? Here's the deal, Mr. Khan. And you know it. 
whether you stabbed her or not, you could have saved her. Such a great scene, Jeannie Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Explain to us why she and that character uh, are so great, the writing and the performance. Initially, let me just say, you don't get to lean on the witness stand. <laughs> you don't get to get face-to-face with a defendant like that. You don't get to do anything she's doing. She's speechifying in front of him. However, uh-huh. having said all that, <laughs> the speech is wonderful. She is amazing. I love her understated See, there's power in her, too. She's laid back. She's almost slow. I have a tendency to get way fast (laughs) in general and in court in particular. I've had court reporters throw things at me. Um, But she takes her time and she delivers this wonderful speech with a laid back kind of tone to her but conveys – Real caring and passion, and it, it, it's a very layered performance. Completely agree. Um, it's you say she wouldn't be able to put her hands over the rail and 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 give a speech without a lot of objections, presumably. But there is, it seems to me, in in courtroom performances, performance. So the, yeah. there is a fiction theater reality blur always, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think the courtrooms, a courtroom is inherently dramatic, right? And especially criminal, life and death things are happening there. That said, that's why I think, you know, she could have delivered this. This feels directorial to me, but (laughs) she could have done the same good job had she done it in a way that is physically possible. You know, you can accommodate the truth. They chose not to here, and that's fine because everything else is, I mean, the writing is so good, it's it's fine. But, um, Interesting. Yeah, it's performative. Yeah. But there's a way to make to pull that off without going so far right. out of bounds. I also entirely agree with your next one. The character of Saul Goodman, the AKA of Jimmy McGill, played by Bob Odenkirk in Breaking Bad and now on Better Call Saul. The clip we're gonna watch is from Breaking Bad. In fact, it's the first time Saul appears. He has just arrived at a police station to meet a client who's being interrogated by a young detective. What are you doing, detective? What are you doing talking to my client without me present? You sneaky Pete. <laughs> which is which? What, a, what did the academy hire you right out of the womb? You guys get younger every... What'd you say to Babyface, huh? Huh? Did you say anything stupid? By anything stupid, I mean anything at all. I, I, I look at you, mouth open, vocal cords of Twitter. We'll talk about it later. Right now, you out. Ten minutes ago. Go on. There are laws, detective. Have your kindergarten teacher read them to you, right? Go grab a juice box. Have a nap. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bob Odenkirk in uh, Breaking Bad. So what's good about his character, those characters? I, there's so much to say about this, it's really hard <laughs> to encapsulate it all. First of all, let me just say the writing is phenomenal. Um, and I think Vince Gilligan is guilty of that all the time. <laughs> um, but it's also his delivery, Bob Odenkirk's delivery, is spot on. I mean, that kind of brash, jokey, but, you know, in your face kind of, that's a great character. It's also, believe it or not, a believable character. I mean, you do kind of come in with a big swinging dick when you have to talk to your client in, in lockup. You know, you want everybody to back off. I'm the one. I'm, you know, standing between you and him and don't you touch him and don't you talk to him again. I mean, it's, it is it is right on. So he just kind of fills out all of the nooks and crannies, the entire 
body of that character in a way that feels so real and natural and, you know, compelling in every way. Hilarious at the same time, very serious. It's That's no easy thing. He never makes Saul ridiculous. Even while you're laughing, he doesn't make him ridiculous. It's an amazing spot-on performance. So you also, in addition, since we limited this to television, you vo- another person you volunteered was Joe Pesci yeah. from uh, My Cousin Vinny. Is it possible to two youths uh, uh, to what? Uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Did you say utes? Yeah, two utes. What is a ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. So My Cousin Vinny is one of my feel-good movies, so when I need to uh, pick me up, that's the one. <laughs> that's the place I go. They made it it's, – it's as funny as it can – you know, it's hilarious, but it's also authentic. That's what makes it so great. When they're showing you the courtroom procedures and what they're doing, a, a lot of it is right on the money. At one point in the beginning of the trial, the, def- the prosecutor gets up to give his opening statement, and Joe Pesci goes – stands up in front of the jury to give his opening statement. Everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you. Objection, Your Honor. Counsel's entire opening statement is argument. Objection sustained. The entire opening statement, with the exception of thank you, will be stricken from the record. The uh, jury will please disregard counsel's entire opening statement. I mean, that's all true. It's perfectly true. So I love that the trappings of it are actually pretty accurate in the course of all that comedy. That's interesting. So O.J. Simpson, he he served... Nine years in prison for robbery and uh, kidnapping. Uh, got out. He's out. Surely some impresario has proposed, hey, Marsha Clark and O.J. Simpson, television event of the 21st century. Let's get them together to do something. Have it, has that happened? Yeah. It has. It, and have you seen it? No. That's why. <laughs> Guess why? Yeah. Because O.J. wouldn't do it. Yeah. We tried. We tried so hard to chase him down. No. Uh, you you would never. Never. You, you, yeah, you would die first. Um, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, what are you dreaming? This was not, and, and it's really weird. You know, it's like people coming up to me and saying, you know, I really loved your show, talking about the Simpson trial. And I, it's not a show to me. He's a, def- yes. he's a murderer, yeah. you know, and he walked out of a courtroom. And there's nothing entertaining about that to yeah. me. Uh, so in real life, it's one thing to say to have Maya Travis pursue someone who is actually a movie star and, you know, have the trappings of, hey, a prosecutor going after someone who's very famous. That's one thing. But to the actual person and the actual situation, nope. So now, 20 odd years after the most horrible experience of your life and as a result of all that being replayed on TV in 2016, you've got this new public persona. You're you're now a feminist icon for people, especially women in their 20s, like my daughters, who weren't really aware of the trial when it happened. Who'd have thunk? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> was it, but that must feel good. That's nice. You know, you know. I think what's nice. Look, it's nice personally. Of course, it is. It, it you know, it feels good for these young women. You know, to to be so nice <laughs> and to be um, appreciative of the way they are. But it's, it's, it's nice to me on a much bigger level, on a much broader level that, uh, pardon the pun, I didn't mean to say that, but for women in general, you know, it, it's, it's kind of an awakening. It's a new era where 
It's okay for women to be tough. It's okay for women to be strong, outspoken. You know, not totally okay. We're not there yet, but it's better. You can't become president. But. No, right? Exactly. Gosh, that's crazy talk. But you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I do think yeah. that there is this kind of deepening awareness of the fact that women do not have to be, you know, Barbie dolls. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's a it's a good thing for for all of us that this is happening. Did this surprising resurgence a few years ago of the O.J. Simpson story? Uh, affect your life in other personal ways? Um, I, I, that's a good question, Kurt. Um, maybe, maybe I'm a little more self-confident. I do think it gives me a little more personal peace to know that I'm understood a little better. I want people to understand how much I cared, how hard I worked, how much it mattered to me. It, it was not a circus in my heart, you know what I mean? It was a circus all around me. Uh, well, good. Uh, and congratulations on the novels and on this uh, new show. And, and, and thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Kurt. What a pleasure. Marsha Clark's new series, The Fix, is airing Monday nights on ABC. Coming up next... I thought I was alone in how this little cartoon freaked me out. I had horrible, reoccurring nightmares based on it the whole time. A surreal Sesame Street cartoon that rattled a lot of kids who saw it, and then mysteriously disappeared. Seriously, I have been looking for this clip forever because it scared me so much as a kid. I am so relieved to see that it either really existed or that we all have some kind of mass psychosis. If anybody finds it, post, post, post. In Search of the Crack Monster, next on Studio 360. Studio 360. When the Children's Television Workshop was developing their first educational show, they borrowed from a pretty unlikely source, 1960s Madison Avenue. Fast action, humor, and animation have become established means of attracting children's attention to television. That's creator Joan Gans Cooney pitching the idea in 1969. You'll note in the animated cartoon sequences that the short, simple, 60-second form used by TV advertisers is used here to teach numbers and letters. That show, of course, became Sesame Street. It premiered 50 years ago this fall. Its format broke the live-action segments on Sesame Street with cartoons. CTW, as it was called, commissioned animators from all over the world to come up with the show's shorts. Most were straightforward and didactic. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Others were abstract and surreal and sometimes even a little unsettling. I think I'm lost. I don't like it here. But one viewer remembers a Sesame Street cartoon that wasn't just strange. It was terrifying. And it's still shrouded in mystery. Studio 360's Sam Kim has the story. When he was about six years old, John Armand was traumatized by something he saw on Sesame Street. It happened sometime in the mid-70s. He was watching the show in his living room, surrounded by bad wallpaper and shag carpeting, and in between segments with Mr. Hooper and Cookie Monster, this 
bizarre cartoon suddenly appeared. John remembers it starting with this little girl lying in her bedroom. There's a crack on her wall, and she watches it morph into the shape of animals. I remember really eerie, off-key music, and these creatures, there was a camel, and I remember that there was a monkey that were supposed to be kind of the good guys, but scared me almost as much as what ended up being the monster. He, he kind of looks like a, like a starburst, like almost how a, a little kid would draw the sun. He's the, the most ominous crack of all, because the music changes and then it becomes even louder and more off-key and more unnerving. And he eventually tries to scream and make himself mean and then he, he crumbles and then there's just plaster. Uh, behind him, and it says he he destroyed himself trying to be mean. I guess the message they were trying to get across is don't be mean or your face might crumble. It was terrifying that something that was, you know, in, in somebody's wall came to life. And I remember in my own bedroom, I had wallpaper, but some of that wallpaper was a little old and it was coming off in some spots. And I just knew that, you know, one of these one of these days, something's going to be behind there, and it was going to get me. And I, I don't know that that's what they intended to have kids think, but it was enough to stick with me for thirty some years after that, to the point where I didn't even know if it was if it was a real thing or not. Did, did this really happen? Because I would ask people that were right around the same age as I was, and nobody remembered it. I couldn't find anybody that they could confirm that it wasn't just alive in my brain. Armand is now a voiceover actor in Los Angeles. He spent over 20 years working as a radio host in San Diego, Portland, and Iowa. And during all that time, the cartoon wasn't far from his mind. Well, I had been looking for it probably from the mid to late 80s to the beginning of the internet, right around 2000 or so, when I actually found a couple of people that knew what I was talking about. One of those people was Jennifer Bourne. She remembered seeing the Sesame Street short multiple times and grew up fearing the crack monster. I remember, you know, at night, you know, when you're a kid and you're scared of silly things, you know, I'd be, you know, afraid like he'd show up on the wall. <laughs> Jennifer lives in Los Angeles. She's an illustrator and draws cartoons online. Is it okay if I if I ID you as a cartoonist? I'm fine for you calling me that unless you think that's cheating because I'm not I'm not like Charles Schultz, you know, like selling calendars and mugs and stuff. You know, I'm very modest. I had a cartoon in Bird Talk once. Huh? That's Hey, that's good enough for me. <laughs> like John, Jennifer started poking around the Internet for any trace of the cartoon. There was a, a thread on the Muppet-themed uh, bulletin board, you know, about what scared you from Sesame Street. And I think that's where it first popped up. I made a thread about it on Snopes. That's the Internet's go-to fact-checking website. And people started trickling in that not only had, did they remember it, but that it scared them. It wasn't just me. And little by little, this odd congregation of people started to form online. It was like a virtual support group of people who were terrorized by the crack monster. And people wrote in from California all the way to the United Kingdom. Here are some of Jennifer's favorite posts. 
I thought I was alone in how this little cartoon freaked me out. I had horrible reoccurring nightmares based on it the whole time. Seriously, I have been looking for this clip forever because it scared me so much as a kid. I am so relieved to see that it either really existed or that we all have some kind of mass psychosis. If anybody finds it, post, post, post. But was it some kind of mass psychosis? Maybe this was one of those examples of a bunch of people having the same false memory. You know, like how people misremembered the Berenstain Bears as the Berenstain Bears. And by the time 2008 rolled around, several Sesame Street shorts were readily available on YouTube, but the Crack Monster short was nowhere to be found. So I began this search, and, and I started going through every possible avenue that I could think of. I, I looked up people that drew and submitted skits and clips for Sesame Street animators at the time, um, during the mid-late 70s. Couldn't find anything there. I eventually got a hold of Children's Television Workshop. At first, they didn't, and, and I'm using, I know you can't see it, but I'm using air quotes. They didn't know what I was talking about. They were like, eh, we don't, we don't know anything about it. We didn't keep all of our shows, and, you know, we couldn't, Sesame Street had been running for 30-some-odd years. There's no way to keep every episode, and we don't know, and blah, 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 blah. So I had, I had pretty much all but given up. I was working at a radio station at the time, and I got a fax. And the receptionist found me in, in the studio and was like, what in the world is this? It didn't say who it was from. All, the only thing that I had was a number that it came from and a number to fax it back to. But it was basically, they said, we have the copy. They didn't say they have a copy. They said they have the copy, uh, which was a weird way to word it. But they said, you know, we'll allow you to see it, but you need to sign this agreement, which was to never have a public viewing of it, never post it online, never email it to anyone, never send it to anybody. You know, this is just for you. And so, I'm, of course, immediately I was like, yes, sign my name. And I faxed it back to this number that I was unable to trace. It was just a fax number. And six months went by and nothing happened. And I thought, well, that, I guess that's the end of that. I don't know who sent me this thing. This is where it gets really weird because it was on a Sunday morning. I was living in rural Iowa at the time, right? In the middle of nowhere. And we had one of those mailboxes that sat like right on the porch, right outside your door. We lived in a neighborhood where the mailman went right up to the porch. And I'd gotten the mail the day before. Well, I went outside and I noticed that the, there was something in the mailbox because it was right by the door. And it, I went in there and there's a, like a manila envelope, like a six by nine little manila envelope. And inside was a disc, a DVD it was just there with a handwritten note. And on it was written, we trust this completes your search. And what was weird was, not only was it on a Sunday, there was no return address and no postmark and no postage. Could it be? Is it possible that the video somehow resurfaced after 33 years? John went inside and he popped in the DVD. It starts with a two-second snippet of the previous Bert and Ernie segment. And then it faded into the cartoon. We see a young girl lying in bed, looking at a crack on her bedroom wall. The animation is it's very simple, it's very minimal. And as the narrator explains, partially in song, she imagines the cracks as friendly animals. And we see one of the cracks shapeshift into the form of a camel. While laying in her bed, the cracks overhead more and more looked like a camel. Today's a rainy day and I can't go out and play. Would you take me for a ride, camel? Said the camel crack, climb upon my back. And right through the wall they did go. 
the first time that I watched it, I wanted to just not think. I wanted to just take it in. And then the girl and the camel travel inside the bedroom wall, and they encounter other imaginary crack creatures. There's a monkey, there's a hen, and eventually the crack monster, or as he calls himself, the crack master. It's this large, splintery crack that resembles a snarling face. Who are you, they said. The crack just growled instead and made himself look very big and mean. He said, I am crack master. But just then the wall plaster began to crumble to the floor and where the monster stood were only beams of wood. He destroyed himself trying to be mean. When, you, when you're looking for something for that long and you finally get it, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck, my hair on my arms just st- stood straight up for 90 seconds while I watched this thing. And it was, it was incredible. And then I watched it again and again. And, of course, probably a hundred times over the course of the next week. We'll go and see the cracks again someday. So John was desperate to share that joy. But he didn't know who was behind that cryptic fax. And he didn't want to cross them. I, I kind of looked for loopholes um, around what I had signed. On April 2009... John was visiting family in Los Angeles, which also happened to be where cartoonist Jennifer Bourne lived. I I got a hold of her and I was like, look, you know, I'm going to be in town. I can't send you this thing. I can't post this thing, but I can show it to you. Um, And and if I do that, will you kind of let everybody know, yeah, I really do have it? Of course I did, but I also thought it was kind of weird to think, oh, are you going to go meet some stranger to see a cartoon? You know, what kind of... Weird, thing, crazy thing is this? They decided to meet on a Sunday morning. I think it was a coffee, bean, and tea leaf on, in Los Angeles on Navy and Sepulveda. And um, wondering like if this guy was really going to show or if he was just going to... There's a lot of strange people in Los Angeles, you know, visiting or otherwise. And so, you know, he could be just some, you know, lunatic that's, you know, trying to sell me doorknobs or something. Then, like, someone showed up, this tall guy with red hair... I had my little DVD player with me and put it in for her. You know, she had the same look on her face when she saw it as I did when I saw it for the first time. There it was. This elusive, you know, formerly scary monster. I was finally face to face with him again. I am Crack Master. He really yelled, yeah, that's him. (laughs) Like, you know, seeing Jimmy Hoffa or someone. At least I didn't get thrown out for yelling, but <laughs> I was thinking like, gosh, you know, that really is an ugly, creepy looking character. I can understand why a high-strung kid might, you know, get a little freaked out by him. So Jennifer wrote a series of blog posts that confirm, yeah, John really did have a copy of Cracks. And of course, he became inundated with all these requests to make it public. And he turned them all down. You know, I I don't know how long the statute of limitations is on that thing I signed, but I don't want to take any chances. One of those requests came all the way from Australia. Daniel Wilson, who's the founder of the Lost Media Wiki, which is a website dedicated to tracking down elusive material. He's been trying to track down a copy for years. And suddenly, on December 2013, he received an anonymous email. No message, just an attachment. It was a copy of Cracks. Here's Wilson talking about it on the YouTube channel Animation Warehouse. And I'm thinking that this is bullshit. Like, before I click it, I'm thinking, no way. There's no way it's this easy. Someone's just going to email it to me. But sure enough, I opened it up and it was the real deal and I royally lost my shit. (laughs) There was some online speculation about who sent that copy to Wilson. 
people were like, I think that John Armand, I think he sent him the, the thing. I was like, no, it wasn't me. It's a completely different, I mean, it's the same clip, but his is formatted different than the clip that I have. This new leaked copy included a production title card, which wasn't in John's version. And it's also missing that brief snippet of Burton Ernie. So maybe it came from a different source altogether? I have no idea. I mean, it didn't come from me. Regardless of who sent that second copy, Wilson uploaded it to YouTube. Camel, thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside. And the internet can now finally enjoy the cartoon that's haunted so many people for nearly 40 years. Which is great for John and Jennifer and all the other Gen Xers who were traumatized by the Cracks video. Decades later, they finally get to see that, yes, it was pretty much as strange and out there as they remembered it. But for me, it's just the beginning. I mean, I never saw Cracks as a kid. I wasn't even born when it came out. But I can't help but wonder, who produced this? Who leaked it? And why was Children's Television Workshop, which is now called Sesame Workshop, trying to hide it? I knew exactly where to go to find out. I went down to Sesame Street to get some answers. We'll return to the mystery of the crack monster after a short break when Sam Kim tracks down somebody who was part of making cracks. It was probably the most goddamn strange recording session I'd ever attended. That's coming up on Studio 360. Studio 360. Studio 360, Sam Kim has been unearthing the fascinating history of a weird, mysterious Sesame Street cartoon called Cracks. And his search has now taken him straight to the source, Sesame Workshop's headquarters in Manhattan. So we're in the what we call the technical operations area. That's Ben Lehman, the executive producer for Sesame Street. He's been at the show for 17 years. You have every style of tape player that you can think of that we've used over the years. Unfortunately, their copy of Cracks isn't in the building. All those old Sesame Street tapes are in Queens. We have an external storage facility that's in Long Island City. It's like one of those giant warehouses, and they physically store tape there. But before they got archived, the tapes were digitized for internal use. So we have a video database that you can pull up films and look at them. So we could, we could do that. Of course, I took them up on it. One of the engineers, Al, led us to his computer. Do we know the title is called again? It's called Cracks. Cracks. Let's see if I can actually find it. I think this is it. Oh, it is. There wow. it is. Almost any Sesame Workshop employee could easily access cracks on their computer. So was this where John's copy came from? Or did it come from somebody at that Long Island City warehouse? Or was it leaked by one of the cartoon's original creators, whoever they are? I have no idea how the copy came into this other person's hands. Cracks was before Ben's time, but he did have some ideas as to why the show might have phased it out. It just feels like dated in a way that when it was made, that probably wasn't apparent to the filmmakers. But then six years later... See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine, the most addictive form. 
You think it's the glamour drug of the 80s? It can kill you. And so I, I think probably the producers at the time thought it was inappropriate. I have one other theory, is that it's about a crack in the ceiling, you know? It's the mid-70s, it's a recession in New York. People's houses might not be in the best shape. It just felt like somewhat insensitive. Whether or not it was insensitive, I still wanted to find out who was behind the cartoon. After I pestered Sesame Workshop for several days, Ben surprised me with a promising new lead. So one of my producers looked it up, and uh, the film is made by P Imagination. That's the name of the animation studio. I had never heard of them. I don't know of any of their other films. I wasn't able to find anything under P Imagination. I Googled every iteration of P Imagination I could think of. Uh, P Imagination Sesame Street, P Imagination Animation, P Imagination Sesame Street Animation, and didn't find anything worthwhile. But there was a studio called Imagination Inc. It was all the way in San Francisco. It was run by Jeff Hale, who did make several Sesame Street shorts. Uh-oh, here comes a big black bird. Shoo, away, take a bus to Birdville. But was this the right studio? I didn't have much luck finding out who the animators are from Imagination Inc., aside from Jeff Hale. And I don't think Cracks is his work. Hale has this distinct design style, and it just didn't look like a match. Then again, it could have been made by some other mysterious employee at Imagination. Sadly, there isn't anyone I could ask. The studio shuttered its doors in 1979, and Hale died in 2015. Uh, I don't have a lot of information on it. Sorry we can't elucidate more. <laughs> but that's the strange thing, is nobody seems to have come forward and explained who made it. You know, because there, there had to be at least you know, half a dozen people involved. You've got the animator, you've got the, the voice artist who was uh, the woman, uh, you've got whoever scored, there was a lot of music in there, whoever scored the, the, the clip. I mean, there's a lot of people involved and so far none of them in, in seeing all the stuff we were putting online, nobody came forward and said, oh yeah, that, you know, that part was me. No one has claimed this clip at all. Even if it was tricky to nail down the production studio, I did get another lead. After some digging, Joe Hennis at Sesame Workshop found the people credited with the music for Cracks. There was saxophonist Mel Martin, radio producer Peter Scott, and someone named Dorothy Moskowitz. I found her on Facebook. After a few messages, she agreed to talk on the phone. Hi there. That's Dorothy. Let me lower the volume now. Hold on a second. But some people on the internet might know her by another name. While laying in her bed, the cracks overhead look more and more like a camel. The crack master. <laughs> I wish I could do it over. <laughs> and it turns out that Dorothy had absolutely no idea that people on the internet have been looking for her for the past four decades. I just found out about it yesterday, so it, it hasn't settled quite. But I was amazed that there is this underground upset and a lot of what can I call it? A cult, you know? And Dorothy wasn't just the voice of some obscure Sesame Street cartoon. She was also the lead singer for the band The United States of America, which was one of the most influential groups of the 1960s. They were early pioneers of electronic music. They used synthesizers and oscillators to create avant-garde psychedelic rock. The band broke up after making their eponymous debut album in 1968, 
but their legacy casts a long shadow. You can hear their influence in bands like Stereolab, Animal Collective, and Portishead, who thank the United States of America in their liner notes. After the disillusion of the band, Dorothy joined the group Country Joe and the Fish. This is her singing with Country Joe. He walks up, he smiles around, does what a human can. Get him out there, big man. I came back off the road from Country Joe, and it was, I guess, a golden era of studio work here in town. And I could be in a band. I had corporate work. I played parties. I did every holiday season. I had Christmas gig, New Year's gig. And I also didn't have to have a day job. And there were many people like me. We could make a living as a musician in this town in the mid-70s. It was fabulous. And one of those studio gigs was narrating this animated short called Cracks. It was probably the most goddamn strange recording session I'd ever attended. Dorothy remembered it being in a studio in the Mission District of San Francisco. Radio producer Peter Scott directed the session. We were in one of the small studios. So there was basically Pete and Mel Martin and myself. So Peter had me lay down the vocals. There was no melody written down there for me. There were no chords written down for Mel Martin. And, you know, sing where you want to sing. Well, what should I sing? And at first I was bewildered. And then I realized that's the way it would work well. There were places where it just fell into melody and places where it didn't. But perhaps not so, said Monkey Crack. At night behind the door, I think I've heard one more. And then Mel Martin, he just insinuated this wonderful line over and above and around my narration. And it matched perfectly. Good day, good day, good day. I'm glad you came my way. And how has everybody been? And then Pete said, well, for the Crackmaster, we need a little more something. And, you know, any actor loves pulling out the stops. It's called eating the furniture. <laughs> Sorry. And so here we have the best visual in the animation and Mel just screeching. I think it's on two instruments. And I'm shamelessly plowing into it with a lot of theater. I am Crackmaster. Just... No wonder kids were scared. I scared myself. Oh my God, that's the lady. After I found Dorothy, I had to share some of the interview with John Armand. So I surprised him with an excerpt. Thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside. <laughs> that's the lady from... I, I recognized it immediately. Oh, that was crazy. Peter Scott died in 2008, and Mel Martin died in 2017. Dorothy still has no idea who wrote or animated the cartoon. There was one person Dorothy remembers being in a session, a mysterious woman in white. She came in quite late. She was covered from head to toe in sheer linens, like a linen blouse and linen pantaloons and a linen skirt, and the pants went down to the floor. And now thinking back 40 years later, it may have been that she was a graphic artist, an artist's dress that way. Dorothy doesn't remember her name, aside from it being vaguely hippie-ish sky or earth or fern or whatever her name was. Again, this was San Francisco in the 70s, so that doesn't exactly narrow it down. I recall her talking about they're having some challenges putting the animation together. So now I'm really wondering whether maybe, maybe Pete got an overall outline from her and then he wrote the words or we'll never know now, will we? Probably not. 
This was a video that haunted kids, and now it's a mystery that kind of haunts me as an adult. I mean, who created this cartoon? Who sent it to John? Who sent it to Daniel Wilson? And who was this woman in white? Like the cracks in the cartoon, the story just keeps morphing and taking stranger new forms. I think I'm going to join some of these chat groups and try and figure out what's what, because I was as close to it as you could possibly be, and I'm still mystified. Camel, thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside. We'll go and see the cracks again someday. You can watch the Cracks cartoon on our site, studio360.org. Special thanks to Joe Hennis, Beatrice Chow, and Ken Scarborough at Sesame Workshop. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter if you're a Twitter user. We're at Studio360Show, and you can be one of the first to know after us what we're working on and thinking about and thinking about covering and where you can also tweet us when something we do pleases you. Like listener Brenda Bowen did recently, tweeting at us about our story concerning the original mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. She tweeted, I cherish the memory of seeing This is Spinal Tap on its opening night and coming out in an elated daze. Adored it then and now. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. You know, you could be just some lunatic that's, you know, trying to sell me doorknobs or something. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. 44 years later, moviegoers are still throwing rice and doing the pelvic thrust. Rocky Horror is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country went. Our upcoming American icon, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, next time on Studio 360.